Our third reading this morning comes to us from the book of Acts, the story of Pentecost, or the beginning of the story, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Listen for God's word to you. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there, amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today, as I mentioned, is Pentecost. And uh, Pentecost is the uh, celebration where we remember the the beginning of the church. Um, uh, The the story of the church really begins with Pentecost. And um, that's what we're going to look at today. And... We celebrated, as I mentioned, um, uh, some of us are so old and dusty, we remember the, the old thing about wearing red. Um, you know, I, I, I'm dwelling on that more than I should, but I remember when, when, I was, um, when I was first a Christian, everyone in the church was wearing red, and I felt awkward because I didn't. And now today I'm feeling awkward because I am. And so I, <laughs> I, I just feel awkward too much. So, so I need to just let that go. But, um, but uh, we wear red, we put up red decorations and so forth. We, we, maybe the carpet came from a red thing, I don't know. But, but um, uh, we have red because we remember the, the flames of Pentecost and we remember Pentecost because it is, it is the beginning of the church. But, um, but to understand its significance, you really have to read the whole rest of chapter 2 or really the whole rest of the book of Acts. Some people have actually called the book of Acts the, um, the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the acts of the Holy Spirit working in the apostles. So so to understand the significance, you really can't stop with the part we read. Um, but but really, the, the, the question for us is, what is the significance of Pentecost for us today? And partly the answer is the same thing, because the church still has the same mission. If the church was given birth on, on Pentecost, it is still here today. And as the church, we have the same mission that we had on Pentecost, which is to bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth and to make disciples wherever we go. So we have that. But as we look in other documents in the Bible, we can find different different um, uh, accounts and different stories that give us dimension and add some color and clarity to to the, the significance of Pentecost. We heard, for example, earlier from the book of Ezekiel, that long passage where God promised to put a new heart in us. And so that's, that's an example of one of the things that we get where we understand the significance of Pentecost. But another place we see that is in the book of Genesis. So what I want to do is look at the book of Genesis because as we look at the story of 
Pentecost, in light of the story of the Tower of Babel, we will see that God has done something truly amazing, and it actually offers us great hope for our own lives and for the work of the church and the world. So so what I'd like you to do is get out the scriptures and, and uh, turn to the passage of the the, um, the story of the Tower of Babel. So it's in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. And it begins by telling us about the good old days. You know how stories often begin, you know, back in the good old days. It says, at one time, at one time, back in the good old days, all the people of the world spoke the same language and they used the same words. This words. This is the same, this is the way so many stories begin. Back in the olden days, everything was wonderful and then things got worse. And that's what's going on in this story. It's telling us why things are bad now. And the answer is because they used to be good and now they're worse. How did they get worse? Well, because the language changed. But as we read the story, we'll see it's not really about the language. The, the writer of Genesis is not really concerned about the fact that people in Mesopotamia speak a different language than the people in Egypt. He probably couldn't care less. What he is concerned about, though, is to teach us something about how problems in the world affect us, how the, how the things that, that we would look at and say, why is the world so messed up, to understand where that comes from and what, what, is, what is the significance of it. So what is the significance? Well, we read about these people who settle in the land of Babylonia. It says, it says the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia, and they settled there. Now, if the Bible had a soundtrack, at this point, the musical cue would go, bum, 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 right? Because there's ominous, there's, there's an ominous character to that sentence. And the reason is because of what we just heard a few chapters back in chapter one. God has told the people what he wants them to do. Um, and they don't want to do it. They say, we want to become famous and, and be kept from scattering all over the world. But God has told them, that uh, back in the garden, God told the people in their innocence, he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. So what the people who have settled there, they're saying, I like the part about governing. Dominion, I'm all over that. But the part about being scattered, I don't like that. So what they're saying is, I want the benefits that God offers and none of the obligations. So they want dominion without obedience. And, and uh, maybe that's a, that's a sermon for another day, but maybe some of you, you, you look at your own life and say, that's really my problem is I want the dominion part without the obedience part. But, but I want to, I want to move on and talk about this in the context of uh, Pentecost. So, so what do they do? They want the dominion. They don't want the obedience. They want to settle down here. So what are they going to do? They're going to start making bricks. They make their bricks and they harden them with fire. So, um, uh, and it gives us a little side note because the people in Judea would have been puzzled by this. They did not make bricks out, out of uh, mud and bake them. Instead, they used stone. So they said they used bricks instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. And there's a lesson there. If only you had bought up all the land 3,000 years ago, you could have got that tar, built the first uh, petroleum distillery, and you'd be rich now. But <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, they used it for, for mortar. So... Uh, what did they do? They said, then, um, they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. 
And that's, that's quite an accomplishment, really, because, because for us, we think of, we think of a tower as something that goes straight up. For, for them, a tower mostly went sideways because it was a big heap of bricks. So, so what does that look like? Um, they, they are called ziggurats. There, there's still some, um, that exist in the Middle East, um, in, in the area of Mesopotamia. Here's a picture of one. This is called Chaco Zanbil, and I'm almost certainly missing the pronunciation. But you can see they're made up of lots and lots and lots of bricks. Years ago, Margo and I did some landscaping. We put a little, we put a little path in the backyard out to a little area with some, um, uh, just a circle with some, some, uh, chairs on it. And, uh, when I got the bill for the bricks, which was just a little path and, and some pavers for the little thing, I remember thinking, wow, that, I better enjoy this a whole lot. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they didn't just settle with one dimension, right? They, they don't just have a flat, a flat a path going out to a circle. They've got uh, an area they're covering and then they're going up. And in fact, they went way up. I don't know the height of Chaco Zanbil, but one of the, one of the, um, uh, ziggurats that, that, uh, scholars tell us about was called, uh, Etimanaki. And, uh, that, that name means the link between heaven and earth. And it was 300 feet high. So think of a pile of bricks 300 feet high. That's a 30-story building. And so it's obviously going to be a lot wider than 30 stories. There's a lot of bricks in there. So it's a pretty impressive accomplishment. And what they would do up at the very top of this mound of bricks that they built is they would put a little temple. And a temple is a place where heaven and earth are supposed to touch. So this temple, this, this temple at the top of Etimenaki, is the link, they said, between heaven and earth. And we can be pretty impressed. Now, now to us, we're, we're not as impressed as we ought to be because we live in an age of, of uh, high-rise buildings. We have skyscrapers. We have, we have uh, air travel. Um, you know, we hear them buzzing overhead all the time. Uh, we have space flight. So we can say, well, yeah, 300 feet, that's not all that impressive. But in the ancient world, particularly when you had to make a bunch of bricks out of mud and bake them, that's quite an accomplishment. So, so we could kind of say, yeah, you know, that's the tallest building around, you know, for, for miles and miles. In my little world, that is far and away the biggest thing I know of. So yeah, I can see that's practically up to heaven. Yeah, so I can see that. But is it? Is it the link between heaven and earth? Well, the, the writer tells us the answer immediately. He says, the Lord came down to see the, to, to look at the building and the, the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord had to come down. This is not a comment on the Lord's vision. It's not that he needs a new correction. It's that he is so far up that in order to see this thing that they claimed connected earth with heaven, God has to come way down. Because no, they have not come anywhere near God. So the comment here is that, that actually their, their ambition to build this city to heaven has, has failed already. They, they are not in a place where they can complete it. But what does God say? God says, um, uh, God says the people come, look, he says the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. So what is God going to do about this? Well, God tells us, he says, Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Now, there's a little play on words here. In the Hebrew, the, the language comes out, it's almost rhyming when the, um, when the people say, come, let us make bricks. That sounds almost exactly like the Hebrew for, come, let us go down and confuse them. So the, the verbs sound very similar. And so, essentially what's going on is, they're saying, come, let's make bricks, and God is saying, okay, that was your turn. My turn is, I'm going to confuse you. 
So God gets the the final uh, word here. God uh, and the narrator tells us that that in that way the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. And we can understand why that might be. Some of you remember 20 years ago uh, something called the Mars Climate Orbiter. Do you remember the story of the Mars Climate Orbiter? Why we never got any data back from the Mars Climate? We don't know as much about the Mars Climate as we wish we did because. It didn't work. It got all the way to Mars, but when they deployed it for its mission to survey the climate of Mars, it had a catastrophic failure, and, and it quit working and, and crashed. And the reason was because one team working on the project was using the English system of measurements, and a different team was using the metric system. And so we understand that, that you can spend a third of a billion dollars to study something, but if you don't communicate clearly with one another, then your project will fail. Now, I don't know exactly how that works out when all you're trying to build is a big pile of bricks, but apparently it was enough to stop them. So they are frustrated. God has come down. God has come down to put a stop to the work. He didn't harm them. He just kept them from getting their work done. So um, that is why the city is called Babel, because it's where the Lord confused the people with different languages. And Babel is another word that sounds like to be confused. So, so um, the, there's a lot of nabab, nabab, nabab words in this, in this in Hebrew. So in this way, God scattered them all over the world. So that's, that's the scoreboard at the end of the story is God won, human ambition zero. And that's really where we leave it from chapter 11 of Genesis all the way into the New Testament where we get to the book of Acts and the story of Pentecost. And what happens at Pentecost is the reversal of this. On the day of Pentecost, all the people, all the believers were meeting together uh, in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. And what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them disability. So they're speaking in different languages, and that's that should kind of make us think, wait a minute, I've heard a story about different languages. What's the, How does that work? And then in case we're, we're kind of slow catching on, Luke goes on. He says, at that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. He's telling us the descendants of the people who were scattered, the people who had hoped to stay in one place but instead were scattered, they did get scattered, and now time has gone by and now some of them have come back for a visit. They've come back to the temple to worship in Jerusalem. And when they hear the loud noise, everyone comes running, and they're bewildered to hear. So they're bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by the believers. And they were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, but instead of hearing Aramaic with a Galilean accent, what I'm hearing is our own native languages. And then there's this map. You can look at this on a map. Basically, they're starting in the east and kind of circling around until they come back to um, to the center of their universe, which is um, which is uh, the Middle East. So they say Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the region of Par- the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So basically, this is the known world for them. They're basically just walking across the map from east to west. And we hear all these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. And they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. Well, in, in light of the story of 
Genesis, the story of uh, tower, uh, the Tower of Babel we read in Genesis, we know what it means. It means a reversal of this curse that God put in the world. Now, now uh, like so many miracles, it's not a permanent thing. When Jesus changes water into wine, he doesn't change all the water of the world into wine. He changes enough to signify what his power can do in the world. And in the same way here, the, that languages still exist, but the ability to be uh, our, our, our curse of being unable to one, understand one another is reversed. And we can imagine how, how encouraging this would have been for those first disciples because just 10 days earlier, um, when he ascended, Jesus said, wait in the, wait in the um, city until the Holy Spirit comes because you're going to be my disciples in Judea and Jerusalem, uh, Jer- Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they would have thought, I'm a Galilean. I can't even speak Aramaic the way they do in the big city. I speak it with a, with a hick accent from up north. And, and how could I possibly go to the ends of the earth? I don't even speak, I don't even speak, you know, Turkish or, or uh, e- Egyptian. I don't speak any of those languages. How can I do that? And then they do. And they say, well, all right, maybe I can do this. Maybe what Jesus said will come to pass because of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out on us. So that's, that's the encouragement they get from this because, because what Pentecost signifies is that Jesus has reconnected us to God and as a result, God has poured his Holy Spirit out on us and into us. And as a result, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, God is no longer our adversary. God is now actually our ally. God is our helper. The Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Holy Spirit is the helper. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's still true today. The Holy Spirit is still working in us. The Holy Spirit is still our ally today. And um, uh, if you think particularly about the fruit of the Spirit, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit lives in us? Well, if you think of the fruit of the Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to try and get this right. I should have had a slide to cheat, but, but it's uh, love, joy, peace, patience, uh, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, um, faithfulness, generosity, and self-control. And if you listen to that list and you think to yourself, how would that help me? Most of the way it would help you is in building community or in communicating with other people. When you are gentle, when you are kind, when you are patient. These are things that actually build community. And this is why we talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit or the communion of the Holy Spirit. Because what the Holy Spirit is all about is building unity, building community, helping people communicate. This is what the Holy Spirit enables us to do. And because of that, um, we're able to to not be stymied by the things that stymied those Babylonians. When my children were small, I, I would read the Harry Potter stories with them, and I was struck that the J.K. Rowling really has one story in her, as far as I can tell. It's uh, miscommunication happens in chapter 2, and then adventures all the way through the rest of the book. And then in the very end, we find out if only they'd mentioned that back in chapter 2, then there wouldn't have been a problem. Harry forgets to tell or is afraid to tell Dumbledore something or Dumbledore won't tell Harry or nobody will find out what's going on with Snape. And so so these stupid mysteries happen and you have to go through the whole book because basically people don't communicate. And really, if you think about it, that's the plot for a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. It's a lot of humanity. 
And it's not just in stories, right? We can think of relationships. Think about the last argument you had. If you're, if you're such a bad Christian that you actually have arguments with people, let me tell you about some of mine. Where they usually begin is not that we just are in perfect clarity about a subject and we just disagree. Usually what happens when I get into an argument is I thought we were on the same page. And then I discover, no, we're actually on two pages. And they are different pages. And that's where the argument happens. It's discovering that we're actually not communicating. And so I think that that's where we find most of our strife in our individual life, in our workplaces, certainly in our politics. You think about how polarized our politics today is, and how does that play out? You know, the the way it plays out, as far as I can tell, is mostly people say, here, I've got a solution for this problem. Shut up. Right? And, and so, so it's like, I want to deplatform you, right? I see you on Facebook, and so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna hit block, I'm gonna hit mute, um, mute if I'm a coward, block if I'm, if I'm brave, then you'll know I blocked you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna call up Twitter, I'm gonna send a message to Twitter and, and have Jack, um, uh, delete your account. I'm gonna demonetize your, your, your videos on, tw- on, on YouTube. I'm going to call up the radio station and say you should be taken off. I want to censor ideas that I disagree with. I think this is what happens with a lot of our discourse today because we don't like talking to people we disagree with. This week I was thinking about purgatory. Um, I, you know, I don't know about purgatory. Um, I, I read things uh, and I think, well, that would, that would solve a lot of theological problems if purgatory existed, uh, but it would create new ones. Uh, theologians have always debated whether or not uh, purgatory exists. Some, some Christian traditions say it does. Some Christian traditions say it don't. Uh, it, it don't? It doesn't. That it doesn't. That, that purgatory don't exist. Um, and um, so, so I don't know, I don't know how to solve that, but, but I was thinking to myself, if purgatory did exist, you know, the, the usual picture we have is it's kind of, you know, hell light. And so there's, you know, there's still lakes of fire and sulfur and all the rest of that stuff, you know, but you get out eventually, you know, 10,000 years go by and then you get out or that's kind of the, the pop culture understanding of purgatory. And I was thinking, you know what, what purgatory should be if it exists, if I got to design purgatory, what it would be is a place where you actually have to have that conversation. That's so painful. I had this, I had this image in my mind of Adolf Hitler listening to Mother Teresa. And she's explaining to him, no, you, you don't understand. Every human being is made in the image of their creator. They are all endowed with the image of God. And that's why there is no master race. It's why there is no subhumanity. Because we're all made in God's image. And I just picture, you know, 5,000 years, 10,000 years, and eventually something finally stirs in Hitler's head. He says, you know, I was wrong. And so I don't know if that's the way it works. I don't even know about purgatory. But I was just thinking... That painful process of listening until you actually understand the difference. It's like, oh, I thought we were talking about this, but we're talking about that. And what Pentecost tells us is that when we lean into that, God leans in with us. God does not come down at Pentecost to be our adversary and to stop us from achieving things, but actually to help us succeed at things. So, what is this, what, what opportunities does this open up for us? Well, we already heard God say, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Nothing. That's a big statement. And God was just saying it about some random Babylonians living out, you know, making mud, mud bricks. God said, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. 
And how much more would that be true with the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us? So I was trying to think of some of the ways that that might play out. If you think about it, you know, in your relationships, those places where you don't have good communication, if you say, you know what, wait a minute, hold on, hold on, before I blow up, I've got the Holy Spirit working inside me, living inside me, helping me to bring about community and to communicate. I don't have to get into an argument. I can actually take a moment and gain some clarity about what we're, what we're discussing here. What would it be like in your relationships if you actually leaned into the power of the Holy Spirit building community in your life? What would it be like at work? What would it be like in our politics? If we actually could say, you know what? I can take some time. The Holy Spirit will help me make some clarity here and then we'll actually move forward in this area. And I was thinking also, what would it be like in our own lives? You know, a, a lot of time, the clarity I need is not with you. The clarity I need is inside, because part of me is saying, you know, let's go that way. And the other part of me is saying, but this way would be a lot more fun. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, like with a Harry Potter book, adventure ensues and, you know, 30 chapters go by, and I kind of wish I had had more clarity up front. You know, our goal as Christians, our, our purpose, the place God is taking us, is to conform us to the likeness of His Son, Jesus. That's really what we're aiming at. And if you are double-minded, if you ever find yourself having one of those conversations inside and shutting it down before it achieves a real, a real decision, and just kind of floating and going along with, with the crowd or whatever, the Holy Spirit can help you there too. The Holy Spirit can bring clarity and help you communicate in that inner dialogue in your own life. But I'm particularly interested in what this means for the church because obviously this is the birthday of the church. This is Pentecost. And so what does it mean for the church? In a sense, that idea, nothing will be impossible for them, is like a summary of the last 2,000 years. If you think of the church, it began as an underground movement and then it became a minority persecuted religion. And then it became a majority persecuted religion. And then it became the state religion. And then by the Middle Ages, it was the only religion anybody had ever heard of, anyone in Europe. And that was just the, the course of the church as an institution. But look at what the church achieved during that time. The first public hospitals were developed by Christians. The, the status of women and children was dramatically transformed. Progress in human rights was, was essentially the province of the church for most of the history of human rights. In, in, in our own era, we've had, we've had progress, uh, the, the, the elimination of slavery, the, the development of public education, uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and since then. These have all been movements with the church at the forefront. Because what God said is true. Nothing will be impossible for them. So what, what does that look like for you? Imagine what that would be for you or for our church, for, for our own church as well as the greater church. If what God said is true, if with the Holy Spirit leaning into us, nothing is impossible for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for pouring your Spirit out on the church those many centuries ago. Lord, we thank you even more, though, that the Holy Spirit continues to be poured out on your church. And so we pray, Lord, 
as the Spirit lives in us, that we lean into the fruit that the Spirit is producing with us to, to make us more gentle and patient, to make us more loving and kind, to help us become a community with the people around us, to communicate more clearly and more deeply. And so, Lord, we pray that by your grace, we would experience with other Christians and even with non-Christians, we would experience a greater community through the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.